0: All to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. He is the God who saves. Are you thankful for that, that he saved you out of darkness into his marvelous light? Amen. We'll open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 as we come around the home stretch of the Sermon on the Mount. Today we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about the love that the Father has for his children. So if you're new here, we do what's called expositional preaching, where we go through big portions of scripture, if not whole books of the Bible, and we go through them verse by verse, and we exposit the word of God. Expositional preaching, think about exposing. We want to expose what it is that God is saying here in the word of God. And we do this in the relation of the person and work of Christ. As Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, all of Scripture is about Him. Amen? So we really don't care what the Scripture means to you, or what the Scripture means to me, for that matter. What we care about is what does the Scripture mean to God. Amen? So that's what we do here. We go verse by verse, and we do this by examining the passage within its historical context and within its biblical context, who is the author Who is the author writing to, and what was he trying to say to the original audience? And how does that then translate into the 21st century, and how does it relate to the person and work of Christ? As Brother Vodibacham once said, the text can never mean what it never meant. So that's what we look to do is exposit the word of God and what is God saying to his people and that's how we grow as Christians by being fed accurately the word of truth. So we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount verse by verse and seeing what God says to his people. Today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 7 through 12. Hear the words of God. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek And you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you? When his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good To those who ask Him. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity, Lord, to look upon your word to see what you have to say to your people. Lord, I pray that the words that I speak today would be that which you have spoken, that I would accurately handle the word of truth, so that you would speak, God, to your people, that you would edify them encourage them, exhort them, uh, convict them where needed. And Lord, those who are outside of Christ today, either physically here or listening, I pray that you would use these words, Father, that you have spoken to bring sinners to repentance, to open up blinded eyes, to change hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Our culture has absolutely hijacked the definition of love. Love to the culture comes in direct conflict with the love that's explained in the Bible. The love of the culture means compromising for the sake of unity, putting unity above truth. Uh, The the love of the culture uh, means affirming or erasing, excuse me, the lines of objective truth, you know, so you don't step on anyone's toes. You want to love them. And so what the culture has done is they have hijacked the word love that we see in the Bible, and they've used it to erase the lines of objective truth, objective morality, so that we don't ever hurt anybody's feelings or offend anybody. Love to the culture means affirming everyone in their beliefs and their behavior, no matter how much it can be an abomination to God. And the church has been affected by, By this false view that the culture is taken of love, by applying this false definition of love to everything when it comes to the Christian life, including the love that the father has for his children. You take the cultural definition of love and then say things like, well, God loves. Yes, they would say, yes, God loves. But God no longer has absolute moral truths. He just loves all people equally. Uh, no matter what they believe, no matter their lifestyle. You see, they would say, God is like us. He, lo- he just loves us and wants us to live at ease and not be convicted about, you know, doing the wrong things or believing the wrong things. You know, God loves us so much, some would say, that he doesn't want you to worry uh, about, about anything that might cause you to be convicted. Uh, you know, just Love others. That's all the culture says. God loves us with this cultural view of love. Therefore, He becomes uh, no less, or no more, excuse me, than a genie where we just command all that we desire and He is to give us because, you know, God loves us. You see this a lot with the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. That God loves you so much, He just wants to give you everything. And instead of God being coming, Uh, instead of God being our our Father who we are to obey and to love, God becomes uh, really just like a a rich boyfriend and just gives us all that we desire, all the physical things that we desire. We just have to ask in faith, that some would say. Now, on the other hand, to some cold and stoic churches who do not teach the whole counsel of God, the love of the Father is not taught. He is at a distance And we just need to try harder when things go wrong. Or when we suffer, it's always our fault. And we just do need to do a little better or try a little harder. So there's ditches, you see, on both sides. But by examining our text today, Jesus displays the love that the father has for his children. And he does it in a shocking manner. He does it by putting the love of the father against the backdrop of the depravity of man. And by examining our text today, we will see how important it is to have a right view of the love that the Father has for his children. But the first thing we must understand to understand the love of the Father towards his children is to understand the depravity of man. And you might ask, Mark, what does that have to do with the love of the Father? But to understand the love our father has towards his children, we must grow in our understanding of just how depraved mankind is. And this is what Jesus uh, explains in verse 11, and that's actually where I'm going to start out with this passage. We're going to start at verse 11, because this little part, many people look over, but it's the hinge of the entire text. Look at verse 11 with me says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Jesus, in a somewhat shocking manner here in verse 11, calls his disciples evil. He doesn't say, you who do evil things. Look at the text. It says, if you being evil... Now, this word here is an adjective. He's not saying that they're doing evil things. Poneras. It means wicked, it means evil. It's used throughout the New Testament to describe wickedness and evil. Why does Jesus do this? Why is he talking about in the middle of asking our Father, seeking our Father, and knocking uh, for the door to be opened? He then drops this uh, bombshell, you, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father who's in heaven give what's good to those who have? Why does Jesus do this? Well, he wants to understand, or he wants his disciples to understand the love of the father. But to do this, he needs to contrast it with the depravity of man and the evilness of man. He provides two examples of a father being asked for bread bread fish, which represents necessities in life, and how even the most evil fathers, in some aspect, will provide for their sons. This goes with mothers, too. You know, as parents, we have this uh, uh, inherent desire, and there's just something in us. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. There's something in us when we see our child hungry, not that they haven't had a snack in like two hours, right? Right? I mean to know and to think that our child could be getting to the brink of starvation. There is something inherent in us that God puts in mothers and fathers that we would do almost anything to get our children some food. We would die for our children if we knew that they literally were going to starve and be without the things needful for their life. Amen? Amen. So. If, so Jesus is trying to explain here that even us with that nature, wanting to provide for our children, being evil, he wants to contrast the evilness of man and the depravity of man with the love of the Father. The depravity of man is the backdrop. It's like the, it's like the, black, the blackness so that the love of the Father could be like that bright shining light. And the darker the backdrop the brighter that light shines. You see what I'm saying? It's like in the pitch black of night when there's a bright full moon. That full moon is shining brighter versus in the day. You ever seen a full moon during the day? It's there. It's kind of bright. But when you have the pitchness black, dark, you see that that moon shining brighter and brighter. And this is what Jesus is doing in our text here today. He's trying to show how much our Father loves his children. By putting it up and against the bitter cold the blackness, the emptiness the depravity of man because mankind is evil from his youth and this is part of the problem with our culture is that we think that mankind might have some problems but deep down man is pretty good by nature. This is actually the core doctrine of secular humanism which came out of the Enlightenment period in the 18th century. And and it says this, that mankind is generally good deep down. We might have our problems, but since mankind is good inherently, we can collectively reason with ourselves to form a greater good without religious dogma. In fact, religious dogma, like Christianity, is actually the problem to these secular Humanist, and it's the roadblock that keeps mankind from being able to prog- uh, prog- progress and form a collective utopian world. And the church, wanting to be relevant to the culture, has adopted these ideas that come from secular humanism, and this false doctrine that mankind has its problems, but it's it's good. Mankind is generally good. And this affects every area of church, and it will affect every area of your life if adopted. Instead of submitting to the authority of God's word, many cultural Christians and cultural churches submit to their own subjective feelings as to what's right and to what's wrong. You following me? Why? Because they believe, you know, deep down we're we're, we're pretty good. Okay? Let me give you an example. Can you believe it's almost been four years since the shutdowns of COVID? Be four years this March 2020. You remember when that happened? In many states, churches were forced by law to shut down while bars and abortion clinics and strip clubs remained open. Do y'all remember that? You remember churches who submitted to God's word and saw this as an intrusion and they biblically defied their government and stayed open and met as a church. There were very few, but there were some. It came to no surprise that those that hate God, that hate his word, reprimanded these churches and called them unloving, right? That was no surprise. But we saw the same opposition from those in a lot of Christian circles who were reprimanding these churches for staying open and they did it in the name of Christian love for neighbors. And friends, this is rooted in the idea, the false idea that mankind is generally good and the government, you know, they're generally good because mankind is good and they just want the best. So since they're good and they're seeking after our good, then us as Christians just, we just need to submit Romans 13 and we just need to do the good Christian thing, and submit to the government. Never mind the word of God grants the authority to the church in the matters of meeting. So mankind is not good, and that's the point Jesus is trying to make here. What does the word of God say about the condition of man? Jesus here calls his disciples evil. Can you imagine for a moment being face to face with Jesus, the God-man, on earth he's teaching you and he looks you in the eye and says you being evil know how to give good gifts it, Jesus just called me evil hey i've been following you i left i left all my house i left everything to follow you and you're calling you're calling me evil can you imagine if jesus said that what does that say now these people believed in jesus they believed he was the messiah okay well what does the bible say about the state of of mankind. See, all Jesus is doing is repeating what's been declared in the Bible from Genesis till now, revelation. Genesis six verse five says, "The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on earth, and all, excuse me, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually." Now it's not enough that it would say that the thoughts of man's heart was evil. It's not what it says there's some key words in this text. Every intent. The thoughts of his heart were only evil. Continually. It's like the writer and the Holy Spirit's going out of its way to make sure that we understand that this is the view that God has upon mankind as a whole. Now, this was before the flood. After the flood, Genesis 8 21, when he saved Noah and his sons and his families, sons' families, he says that he would never curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. So it's the same doctrine, the depravity of man. Then if you look at Psalm fourteen, verses one through three, it says The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. And then look at verse 2. It says, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, as far as understand the things of God, any who seek after God. So here, God's looking down upon mankind to see if there's anybody who gets Him, anybody who seeks for him, anybody that does good. And what does it say in verse 3? They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt, it says. There is no one who does good, not even one. Psalm 53 repeats the exact same thing. And then in the New Testament, Paul quotes these two Psalms in Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Mark, I know somebody who loves God. We're talking about the state of man outside the grace of Jesus Christ. We're talking about all of mankind are dead in their sins and trespasses, are slaves to sin, and, and they're all corrupt, it says. There's none who wake up one day and say, you know what? I think I want to search after God. Outside the grace of Jesus Christ, there's nobody who does that. God has to make the first move. Or what about Job? Look at what's said in Job chapter 15, verse 14. What is man that he should be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he should be Righteous. Behold, he puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is detestable and corrupt, listen, man who drinks iniquity like water. And then in Ecclesiastes 9 verse 3, the latter half of the verse says, The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Jeremiah 17, 9, familiar passage to us. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Then in the New Testament, when the Pharisees came to Jesus asking why his disciples broke the tradition and did not ceremonially wash their hands before eating, making them unpure to them, Jesus gives them a parable And then later explains to his disciples in Matthew 15 and 17. He says, are you so lacking in understanding? Do you not understand that whatever goes into man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it goes into his heart, into his stomach, and is eliminated. And he was saying that that which proceeds out of the man is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart, speaking about man's heart now, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. It's clear, folks, all throughout the Bible that mankind is evil, is fallen. Some reason we think that man has evolved and become better over the centuries and over the millennia, but mankind has not gotten better uh, without the grace of God. Again, inherently, mankind is evil. Now, why do I go through all that? I wanted to go through all that because, again, that is the backdrop by which Jesus... Wants us to view the love of the Father. If mankind is evil, and He is, and even evil mankind, for the most part, knows how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will your Father, your heavenly, loving Father who created the universe, the stars, the sky, the earth, and everything in it, how much more will this Father give what is good for His children? What great love our Father has. For his children. And this is what Jesus wants us to understand. Jesus says, Good things. What are these good things? He says in verse eleven, How much more will your father who is in heaven give you what is good to those who asks? So that begs the question: what, is, what are these good things that Jesus talks about? Is it a new Mercedes that I need, right? Because my one's three years old, so I need a new one. That's good to me, right? So what is he talking about? Well, some might say that he's talking about the material necessities of life, those things that we don't need to worry about. If you remember back in chapter 6, verses 25 to 34, where he says not to be worried about these things, food and drink and all the basic necessities. But back there, he doesn't give the command to ask, to seek, or to knock. He just says, don't be worried about these things. He doesn't give that command. Well, both the context of this passage and the parallel passage in Luke will give us some clarity about what Jesus is meaning when he says, give these good things to their children. So turn to Luke 11 with me. We're gonna read this parallel passage. It gives us some insight into what Jesus is instructing here. Now, the context of this parallel passage in the book of Luke, chapter 11, is Jesus is giving his disciples instructions for prayer. The disciples come to him, beginning of the chapter there, asking him to teach them how to pray. So he gives an abbreviated uh, version of the disciples' prayer. Uh, And then he gives this parable, beginning in verse 5, this parable about a friend who comes to his uh, house in the middle of the night asking for bread because he has some visitors arriving. Jesus says in verse eight that the friend will eventually get up out of bed to give him some bread because of the friend's persistence. So that's the backdrop. Now look at starting at verse nine. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and him who knocks it will be opened. Now suppose if one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish, he will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, there it is again, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So that's a bit different. The whole verse, aside from the the difference of the, um, the fish or the egg and the scorpion, everything's about the exact same thing as our text in Matthew 7, except that last part. Instead of saying, how much more will your heavenly Father give what is good? He says, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So he uses in place of what is good with the Holy Spirit. That gives us some insight in what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 7. So what do we know about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit comes to us and indwells us when we come to Christ. Not later, not before. Romans 8 verse 9 says, But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So as soon as we come to Christ, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, okay? So to ask for the Holy Spirit, when Jesus says, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Well, we're not asking for the Holy Spirit as believers. So this is synonymous with salvation. Jesus is saying those who ask, those who seek, those who knock to be saved and plead for mercy and believe upon Christ, God will give you the Holy Spirit. But also consider this. In Ephesians 5, 8, we are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Apostle Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay? What's he saying there? That word is in the active tense. It literally means be being filled with the Spirit. And he's not saying get more of the Holy Spirit, because you can't have more of the Holy Spirit. Once you come to Christ, you get the Holy Spirit. But when we are being filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is what leads us, guides us, and gives us the power to obey the Word, which is what the Holy Spirit wrote. So when we're being filled with the Holy Spirit, we are submitting and giving ourselves more and more to the control of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. And the means by which God sanctifies us grows us in the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. Very most, it's an invitation to ask for more spiritual blessings produced by the Holy Spirit. You following? These are the good things that God is telling us to ask Him for. Listen, friends, this is not an invitation to ask, seek, and knock. For more money, for bigger houses, for more materialistic things, for bigger barns so that you can store your stuff. That is not an invitation of what God, Jesus is saying here, to ask, to seek, and to knock. James 4 says you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives so that you spend it on your own. Pleasures. So, this is an invitation when Jesus says, Ask and it will be given, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. When he gives this invitation, it is to seek, ask, and knock for the things which would grow us in our love for God and love for neighbors. We are asking for things that would grow us in our sanctification and our conformance to Christ. We are asking to grow in our courage to speak the gospel to unbelievers. These are all spiritually good things that your father wants to give you if you'll just ask, if you'll just seek, if you'll just knock. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way on this text. He says, Ask for any one of these things that is good for you, that is for the salvation of your soul, your ultimate Perfection anything that brings you nearer to God and enlarges your life and is thoroughly good for you, and he will give it to you. He will not give you things that are bad for you, he says. You may think they are good, but he knows they are bad. He does not make a mistake, and he will not give you such things. He will give you the things that are good for you, and the promise literally is this, that if we seek these good things, The fullness of the Holy Spirit, the life of joy, love, peace, long-suffering, etc. All these virtues and glories were seen shining so brightly in the earthly life of Christ, he will give them to us. Oh, how the church lacks in this area, doesn't it? Christians believe what they do is right in their own eyes, and they don't seek sanctification. They don't seek these spiritual blessings that Christ is ready to dispense to his people. They don't ask to grow in their hatred towards sin and love for God and holiness. They don't knock for the door to be opened to be more like Christ. They live at ease. Many of us, comfortable, apathetic, living under the under the delusion that we have somehow arrived and we don't need more of these spiritual blessings that Christ is ready to give us no but Jesus tells us ask these are commands seek knock however to receive these spiritual blessings there are some conditions and that's what I want to go through now two conditions to receive these good things that Christ is ready to give us. The first, to receive these blessings from God, we first must understand our own need. Jesus uses these three verbs to illustrate how we need to understand our need before he will bless us with spiritual blessings. Look, if you don't understand how much you need Christ, you won't ask. You won't seek and you won't knock. Now, even within the context of this passage, Jesus is telling us that we need to first know how much we need God to do anything good. You remember last week, we preached on hypocritical, self-righteous judgment, on having a uh, condemning attitude towards others. Uh, This passage was meant to cut to the heart and make us realize how easy we can slip into spiritual pride and have prideful hearts and look down upon people with contempt, because they don't measure up, up, they don't measure up to our level of Christianity. This causes us to ask the question: How can I possibly do this?" I think it was, it was yeah, it was Peter that goes to the Lord. Remember, Jesus is talking about forgiveness, and, and he says, "How often should I forgive?" my brother seven times he goes no 70 times seven and that whole he's talking about forgiveness and at one point his disciples say oh increase our faith they realize that i don't have this within me and that's the point that's the whole point of the sermon on the mount is to look at this this law that god has that jesus corrects the the misinterpretation that the pharisees had of the law that it was only external and he say no it's internal right you heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, he who looks upon a woman with lust commits adultery in, her heart, in his heart. The whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is for it to be a mirror to look to us and make us realize just how much we need God. It actually is meant to leave us in a state of hopelessness, of despair. That, that is the whole purpose, friends. Of God's law because it's only then that we can recognize our need and then flee to Christ asking seeking and knocking so I ask you are you aware of your utter need to grow do you desire to love God more to spend more time with him in prayer and in his word do you desire to grow in your love for others to obey God? Do you desire to grow in your obedience to God, in your role as a spouse, as a parent, as a gospel witness to the world? Perhaps you're just apathetic, and you don't seek, ask, or knock for God to help you. Well, guess what? If that's you, he won't. He won't help you. You get what you want if you're apathetic to the things of God, if you're apathetic to growing in your holiness and sanctification, if you're apathetic and growing in your obedience and submission to Christ's word, you're not gonna seek him in this manner and God's not going to help you. But if you desire these things, but you realize how short you fall, my encouragement to you is to seek, not to try harder, but to grow in your understanding of just how much you need him. As much as you need God to breathe, live, eat, and drink, you need him to do anything good. Do you understand that, my friends? Until you grow with this understanding of your need for him, your Christian walk will be stifled. Until you can say from the depths of your soul, as the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, O God your Christian walk will be hindered until you can say these things with conviction in your heart, until you can say from your heart as Paul did when he said, I know that nothing within me is good. He said, I know that within me dwells nothing good. Until you can say that, your Christian walk will be hindered Brothers and sisters, there is a direct correlation between understanding your need for God and your sanctification. There is a direct correlation. And this is the opposite of our culture, which teaches that the better mankind gets or the better we evolve and progress, the less we need God. But it's quite the opposite. So if you're not growing in your sanctification, Are you apathetic about it? If you have the same besetting sins that you know don't please God, do you ask? Do you seek? Do you knock? Do you not understand your need? And that anything that is good that you have done or desire to do, friends, is only through God. It's not through you. As Paul says, I know that nothing within me there's nothing that good that dwells within me because we are corrupt friends we have to understand that you know what's great about that some people might object to that doctrine and say you really believe that that every part of your core is corrupt and evil and bad and i say yeah i praise god that i realize that because it's freeing to know and it it what it does friends It humbles you when you realize that the good things you do when you obey God, whether it's loving your spouse, uh, raising your kids right, reading the Bible, praying, uh, not returning evil for evil when somebody assaults you verbally or whatever it might be, right? When you do something good, you must realize, if you did it for the right motives, that that's only by the grace of God, through the Holy Spirit and His power, It's not that you're any better, friends. And that should be a comforting doctrine to us. It kills our pride. So first, we must understand our needs. Second, to receive these spiritual blessings from God, we must be persistent in asking. We must be persistent. Look at the text here in verse 7 and 8. He gives three commands to emphasize the need to be persistent. He says, ask, that's in the imperative. Command, it will be given. Seek, again, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. And then look at verse 8. He almost repeats the, the same idea. For everyone who receives, everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds, and him who knocks, it will be opened. It's almost like he's repeating himself. But if you look a little deeper into the text, the, the verb in verse 8, where he says, everyone who asks, it's, it's in a form called a participle, which doesn't mean anything to most of you, I understand, but it's a verbal noun. So it can almost be said in this way, all, verse 8, all of the asking ones. It, it, it's a present ongoing thing. So it, it's like he's saying, all of the asking ones will receive. All of the seeking ones, are you a seeking one? All of the seeking ones finds. And all of the knocking ones, it will be opened. You get what he's saying here? In order to receive these spiritual blessings, friends, you must be persistent in asking, seeking, and knocking. And the passage in Luke, Luke 11 that we looked at, clearly shows us that with this persistence, the idea of persistence with the parable right before Where the man comes to his friend's house and he's persistent, middle of the night, banging on the door. Hey, I got visitors. And the guy says, What did he say at first? Hey, all my kids are in bed. The lights are off, the the candles are off. But Jesus says, Because of the man's persistence, his friend will get up and give him bread. God doesn't want you to be apathetic about spiritual things, He wants you to be persistent. He wants you to be an asking one, a knocking one, a seeking one. Now you might say, well, Mark, you know, you've teached that God is sovereign, so he's going to do whatever he wants to do. Why do I need to ask if it's his will for me to grow in this area or for this to happen? You know, why do I need to be so persistent in asking since he is sovereign? Well, right. He is absolutely sovereign. But God not only is sovereign, meaning determine the end from the beginning, he uses means to accomplish his will. And he uses the means of you praying, seeking, asking, and knocking to accomplish his will. So you're not off the hook. God's sovereignty should never be an excuse to negate your responsibility. I don't understand how those two paths cross, but they're both taught in the Bible. God is sovereign and you are responsible therefore seek with persistence so he uses means of our persistence by asking seeking knocking why does he do this friends if you're apathetic about your besetting sins and all of a sudden god takes it away then then who gets the glory oh wow look what i did but if you're persistent if you beg of him if you call out for him daily Asking, seeking, knocking, and he helps you to overcome a besetting sin, then who gets the glory? Oh Lord, I couldn't do it when I was apathetic, but now that I'm seeking you, you have done the work, and now he gets the glory. So when you're struggling with besetting sins or areas of your life where you're trying to grow to be more like Christ, grow in your understanding of your need and get committed to be like this persistent friend. Asking, pleading with God for help. When you struggle with having the courage to share the gospel, as many Christians do, same thing. Grow in your understanding of your need for him and be persistent on asking, pleading, knocking, asking him to help you to not be fearful of man. Plead with him that you would fear God more than you would fear man and share the gospel with the lost and dying world. Amen? You must hunger and thirst for righteousness, as he said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. You need to take your request to God as the persistent widow did in Luke 18, who was persistent with the unjust judge. You recall that account? The Bible says that this, uh, Jesus says the unjust judge was being worn out by this widow who kept coming to him and coming to him. Give me legal protection, she keeps demanding. And he's an unjust judge, Jesus makes that point. And at one point, the unjust judge says, This widow is wearing me out. The word in the original language is, She's given me a black eye, is what it means. And not because I fear God, the judge says. But because she's what? Persistent, I will give her what she wants. And Jesus gives that parable, the beginning of Luke 18. He says, or the Bible says, Jesus gave a parable uh, to his disciples, how they ought to pray at always and not lose heart. Have you been like that, widow? In your needs to Christ? Have you been like that? friend knocking on the door in the middle of the night in your needs your spiritual needs the the good things that we need from God or are you just apathetic and comfortable we should examine ourselves and maybe we need to do some repenting that we see areas of our life where we could grow and are not pleasing to God but we've just been apathetic about it we hardly even ask God We hardly seek God for his help in this area. God has given you what you want. He's not going to help until we become persistent to ask, seek, and knock. Now let's end briefly by looking at verse 12. Jesus says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophet's. So he says, therefore, now this word means because of these things. It's a a conjunction. He's saying these things being so or consequently treat people in the same way you want them to treat you. Now, what is he talking about? He's obviously pulling something from what he just said. It could be immediately from the preceding verses that we looked at, because your father loves you, wants to give you what is good, therefore treat others how you want them to be treated. Don't see that fitting quite so much. He could be reaching back to the beginning of chapter 7 on, on hypocritical judging and treating people how you want to be treated. You don't want others to treat you with contempt and self-righteous judgment. Therefore, in everything, treat others how you want to be treated. So that's definitely a plausible um, a plausible way to look at it but i actually think it reaches back further i think it encompasses all of his teaching beginning at chapter 5 verse 17 here in the sermon Uh, if you look at that text chapter 5 verse 17 he says do not think that i came to abolish the law or the prophets i did not come to abolish but to fulfill the reference to the law and the prophets mirrors the text here in 712 where he says this is the law and the prophets now this is a literary device called inclusio which you don't may not know this that greek doesn't have punctuation it's just it just keeps going okay and they're all capital letters in koine greek they would write there is no punctuation so greek writers often would use this literary device called inclusio or or think about envelopes right where they would have two things kind of bracketed, two verbs, two ideas, and they were brackets, and it's intended to tell the reader or the listener that, hey, everything in between here has this same central theme. So we see that with chapter 5, verse 17, the law and the prophets, and then he goes to correct the pharisaical external interpretation of the law and the prophets, and then in chapter 6, he talks about Practicing your righteousness, which is the standards of the law, in front of others, but having an internal righteousness, doing things for the right reasons. And then he comes to this end, and he says, in everything therefore. Therefore, all of these things treat others in the same way that you want to be treated. Now, regardless of what Jesus is connecting back to, if we look at the command, this is what's called what? the golden rule, right? Now, interesting enough, this wasn't the first time this golden rule appeared, but it is the first time that it appeared in the positive. Ancient writers would write something like the golden rule, but they would write it in the negative, meaning don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Uh, But Jesus here says, treat others uh, in the same way you want them to treat you. He says, for this is the law and the prophets. But this is not negating the Old Testament law, as some people would say. They would say, you know what? We don't need the Old Testament law. It's just summed up on love God and love your neighbor, right? How many times have you heard that? Well, we get some insights if we look at all of the scriptures that Jesus mentions this because he does this in other passages. And in like Matthew 22, verse 40, he, he gives the whole idea. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength love your neighbor as yourself. He says this doesn't replace the law. He says, upon these two hang all the law and the prophets. And that word means to be suspended, uh, literally to hang. So if you get a visual in your head, you have love God, love neighbor, and below those you have all of the law. It all hangs, it all filters up to these two commandments. Jesus is not un hitching from the Old Testament. So love the Lord your God. That's the first and foremost commandment that he says, right? Well, how do you do that? Do we just make up ways on how we love God? No, it's in the Old Testament law. It's in the first four commandments of the moral law. Worship him alone. Don't make idols and worship them. Don't use the name of the Lord your God in vain. Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Those four things, and then the rest of the Old Testament expounds upon the ways that we are to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. How do we love our neighbor? Do we just make up pragmatic ways to love our neighbor? No. The second half of the Decalogue, the the Ten Commandments, Commandment 6 through 10, you love your neighbor by not stealing from them. You love your neighbor by honoring your parents. You love your neighbor by not coveting their things. You love your neighbor by bearing, not bearing false witness about them. So, and then the rest of the Old Testament gives us the exposition of how we are to love our neighbor as ourself. So to summarize what Jesus is saying here in this text, it's kind of what he said in John 7, 37. All who are thirsty, come to me and drink. Friends, Jesus is the fountain of living waters, and he invites us to come to him if we're thirsty. But the question is, are you thirsty? Do you hunger and thirst for him? He is the bread of life. Jesus said the one who comes to him will not, will never go hungry and will never be thirsty. Revelation 21 6, he says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give water to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He invites us again, the very next chapter in Revelation 22, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires Take the water of life without cost. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus gives the invitation, friends. Ask, seek, knock. For everyone who asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And he who knocks, it will be opened. The question is, friends, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Are you hungry? Are you, are you tired? Are you weary? Are you sick of being in the same rut of life? Are you sick of falling prey to the same besetting sins? Are you sick of not being holy? as he is holy. I am. I pray you are too. Ask, seek, knock, understand your need for Christ, and then run after him with persistence. May we wrestle with God as Jacob did and would not let go until God blessed him. May we have that same outlook on our life. Your Christian struggles may be God's way of calling you back to get serious about your walk. It may be that God is calling you back to wrestle with him, to ask, seek, knock. To ask, seek, knock, ask. Seek and knock. And when he answers, When you find him, when the door is open, give him the glory and praise he is due. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great mercy. Lord, we thank you for your love that you have upon us. Lord, we are so undeserving of your love lord we constantly grow cold to you we constantly look for the things of the world to fulfill us we constantly fall into apathy when it comes to our christian walk but lord you your love and your grace is greater than all of that and lord time and again you you invite us to come you invite us to ask and to seek and to knock although we constantly fall short Oh, what love, what love our Father has for his children. Lord, I pray if there's any here that are not in Christ, that are still trusting in, in their own works or trusting in their own um, formula they did as a kid, whether it's uh, baptism or saying a, a sinner's prayer, walking an aisle, whatever it is that they are trusting in outside of trusting in Christ alone. Lord, I pray those that you would open up their eyes and hearts Lord, cause them to see their need so that they would come with a thirst and a hunger for Christ, for salvation. That they would turn to you with all their heart, all of their faith, and put their trust in you. Father, I pray for those of us that are in Christ. I pray you, God, would create the hunger that we need and the thirst that we need. Help us, God, to understand our great need for you to do anything good so that we would ask, that we would be persistent. We would be the asking ones and the seeking ones and the ones that are constantly knocking. Father, forgive me and forgive us for being so apathetic in our sanctification and our growth and holiness. Forgive us. Lord, help us in our time of need. We thank you, God, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that, Lord, that you said that you predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that you're using, right now in this very moment, you're using your word to fulfill your promise to conform us to Christ And for that, Lord, I am grateful and thankful that you are sanctifying your bride. Give us courage to speak truth. Help us to fear you and not fear man. We give you all honor. We give you praise. In Jesus' name.